0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks, the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which our guest, uh, we had the pleasure of hosting at our SALT Abu Dhabi conference in 2019. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome you to the latest episode of our digital asset series with someone who was a pioneer in the space before, quote, it was cool. Uh, Her name is Jalak Jobanputra, and I'm going to read A little bit more about her bio before we welcome her uh, onto the camera. Jalak is the founding partner of Future Perfect Ventures, which is an early stage venture capital fund focused on decentralized technology with a focus on blockchain tech and crypto assets. FPV was the first venture fund worldwide formed with a thesis on decentralization. And the portfolio includes companies like Abra, Blockstream, Bitpesa, The Graph, Everledger, and blockchain. In 2017, Jaloc was cited as a top five investor powering the blockchain boom. And Crunchbase noted that FPV was one of the top VC funds in blockchain, as I mentioned before, quote, before it was cool. In May of 2018, Jaloc was awarded Microsoft's VC Trailblazer Award for her early and bold investments into the sector. She has also been awarded among institutional investors' most powerful fintech deal makers for the past three years with prior exits, including Ariba, which was sold to SAP, Yodli, which IPO'd, TXVIA, which was sold to Google, Viore, which was sold to IBM, and Schoolnet, which was sold to Pearson. Uh, previously, Jalak was the Director of Emerging Market invest- Mobile Investments, at the Omidyar Network, which was a fund launched by Pierre Omidyar, the co-founder of eBay. And previous to that, she served in a number of different roles related to software and FinTech. Uh, She graduated magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania with a bachelor's in economics with a concentration in finance from the Wharton School of Business and a BA in communications from the Annenberg School at UPenn. She also received her MBA from the Kellogg School of Business at Northwestern University, Outside of Chicago, Jalak, welcome to Salt Talks 18, where we were able to get to know you. Uh, you've obviously been very early to the digital asset space, so congratulations on that. But where we like to start every one of these talks is a little bit in your own words about your personal background. Obviously, I read a lot of your bio there, but you know, stuff something that wasn't in your bio about your personal background and where you got to, or how you got to where you are today, and also, you know, what was your aha or eureka moment as it relates to digital assets and Bitcoin. It's something we like to ask everybody. Everybody goes on a journey from skeptic to believer. Uh, so as part of you know, a brief introduction about your personal background, could you describe how you uh, found digital assets and how you became such a ardent believer in the space?
1: Yes, well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, the, my personal background is very much related to why I got into Bitcoin and crypto back in 2013. I was born in Nairobi, uh, came to the US when I was young um, and grew up going back to Africa and India of Indian origin. And this was in the 1980s when um, these countries were not as developed as, as they are now. There was really no connectivity um, you have to uh, wait for a phone line outside to, to be able to call outside of uh, the village or, or even the city. And so that was really very much on my mind as I started my career. And I started off on Wall Street doing uh, tech, telecom, and uh, media investment banking in the mid 90s, um, was very fascinated by this new thing called the internet in 1995 when I saw the Netscape IPO happen. And I started thinking back to those childhood memories of of that connectivity that the internet could enable. And and since then has certainly enabled, um, and we now have 6 billion mobile phones around the world. A lot of these countries um, all around Africa, India, uh, Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, Latin America, have leapfrogged. Um, They never went to the uh, telephone lines, they went straight to mobile. And then Kenya, where I was born, uh, was kind of ground zero for mobile money and and M-PESA. So when I decided to start my venture fund uh, in 2013, as part of my exploration, I was thinking about what was next. Um, Yes, we saw the internet, we saw mobile cloud computing, all these kind of infrastructure investments and connectivity. and, and I felt like we were primed for a next wave of technology evolution and revolution that was going to take advantage of that connectivity but create new business models. And, and I was thinking of artificial intelligence, internet of things, these sensors that are now you know, cost sense um, and, and microprocessors that, uh, that now enable our smartphones to have more processing power than NASA had when we put a man on the moon. And uh, I was at Intel uh, Capital in in the late 90s out in Silicon Valley, so very familiar with Moore's Law and and semiconductor um, industry and and how uh, we were going to be able to uh, do a lot of things that were not previously possible when we didn't have these fast processors. So, Um, Bitcoin was on my list of exploration. And and when I went to my first Bitcoin conference, um, I just got goosebumps the way I did when I first logged into the internet in in, uh, 1994. I um, uh, really became fascinated by this idea of, of being able to use this network of computers, this connectivity that I just described, Uh, to uh, enable transactions uh, instantaneously across borders uh, and with no intermediaries. So uh, just thinking about going back to Africa, where we have so many unbanked, underbanked uh, people, uh, you know, just like they never had landline phones, they're never going to have a banking relationship the way we do in in the United States or people do in Europe. And I felt like Bitcoin was was the first real technology that I would seen that uh, enabled uh, people to transact with each other with no central intermediary that was taking out fees. Um, And it's really those fees and the infrastructure that has kept uh, the the cost of infrastructure build out that has kept a lot of companies and banks from actually serving um, these populations. so I, I was instantly sold. Um, I was instantly sold on, on on Bitcoin. I instantly bought some Bitcoin, and uh, and made uh, the underlying blockchain technology the uh, the underlying thesis uh, of, of of Future Perfect Ventures when I launched it the next year.
0: Right. No, it's fascinating, and I want to you know keep going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole before we talk about this broader decentralization movement. So. Mm-hmm. You wrote a piece. Uh, it was published in Recode. It was first published on your blog in 2017. It's pinned to the top of your Twitter profile. Um, Bitcoin at, the, at that time was at $10,000 per coin. Uh, and you talked about how it was going to revolutionize money. Uh, could you, you talked a little bit about the outline of that thesis, but could you go through that thesis again about why you think it's revolutionizing money and did you expect the story in terms of price appreciation of Bitcoin to play out this quickly or, or how has uh, you know the last 3 years played out relative to your expectations?
1: Yeah, so it has happened very quickly and I think the the excitement and the fact that this is open source code where anybody anywhere in the world can can build upon this underlying technology is is what's helped make the make it move so quickly and in terms of the underlying technology and then certainly from a financial perspective and a store of value narrative we've seen so many macro events that have um, uh, led to some of the recent price appreciation we've seen where it's now over fifty thousand dollars so um in in some ways you know i it has happened very quickly in other ways you know uh a lot of people who haven't been in the sector for a while d- don't realize that you know back in 2014 to, to 2016 it didn't really do much and then we had the big run up in 2017 and a big crash um uh, right after that and and uh, the sector was pretty much forgotten by, um, I, I'd say folks um, you know, uh, who were looking at it from a macro standpoint or some of the retail investors, but slowly the building continued to happen by the entrepreneurs and the technologists, the people who were sold on this idea of this borderless um, uh, a system of, of transactions. Now, this goes back to that, that thesis of, of uh, revolutionizing money. Uh, if you look at money it's it's a transaction mechanism and and the history of money goes through barter and objects and and gold and and uh and and this kind of fiat as we know it uh hasn't really existed that long and if you take a step back and think about money that way um and, and you think about the fact that we're still transacting with these kind of paper (laughs) pieces of paper (laughs) that cost more to produce uh, or these coins that cost more to produce than than their actual face value and and they're getting devalued by monetary policy and government controls and politics Um, the idea that computers and a, a network of computers can can provide the next generation of money to us or that that ability to transact is is really kind of a no brainer in my mind, right. um, and, and that's why I think it's appeal to um, uh, internet natives, right? The generation that um, uh, doesn't understand why you know we can't go to a bank twenty four seven, why why we can't transact over the weekends through our banks. I mean, it, it's it's silly how we have so much that's on demand. Uh, but our monetary system is not. And and they certainly lived through 2008 and saw, you know, how much um, the banks actually control uh, the money that we work really hard for. And, and those in emerging markets and, and where I'm from, um, it's also, I'd say, been a no-brainer for longer than a lot of folks in the United States have, have uh, come along with this concept because, you um, they are used to governments that uh, will uh, uh, put controls on what, how much money they can move out of the country. Um, we saw that with China, that's why China was an early adopter of the technology. India, demonetization a few years ago where the government basically said certain uh, banknotes were, were deemed uh, illegal tender and, and um, and and the price of Bitcoin in, at that time went um, much higher in in India than it was in the in the rest of the world. Um, and we're seeing that happen in Nigeria today, when um, you know the, the government of Nigeria recently reiterated that um, uh, they did not support cryptocurrency. So right. um, what what we've seen around the world is is and and going back to the connectivity I mentioned, now that the world is connected, people can see what's happening in the rest of the world, the genie can't go back in the bottle. Um, And and that's why we're seeing exponential growth in the sector. So we're seeing it now from the institutional level, um, which is fairly new. So I'd say the developed world institutions have really kind of caught onto this concept only in the last uh, six to 12 months. and, but we've slowly seen this grassroots uh, support of, of Bitcoin um, for, for many years, and that's been building over time.
0: Right. So you referenced that 2017 rally that took Bitcoin uh, up to almost $20,000 per coin, but then we saw it uh, fall back to around $3,000 and change. And I think, you know, obviously, there was a lot of public interest in Bitcoin at the time that receded And people sort of wrote it off as, you know, a pump and dump scheme or some type of Ponzi scheme, uh, given that extreme volatility that we saw. We're now seeing Bitcoin ramp in an even more extreme, rapid way in 2020 and 2021. Why is this rally potentially different than the rally than we saw in 2017? Do you think realized volatility will continue to fall, which it, it has been lower, actually, during this rally than it has been over previous uh, cycles in its history. So do you, do you expect volatility to fall? Do you expect you know, people to have to just weather that volatility or why is it different this time around?
1: Yeah, I think it's night and day. Uh, the 2017 rally and what we've seen in 2020 and 2021, um, and I view it very similar to what we saw in 1999 with the internet. And I was out in the valley, as I said, investing for Intel uh, Capital. And I was in the belly of the beast uh, when, when we were seeing um, you know, companies going public on, on very little, um, this frenzy uh, around the uh, any, any company that had a dot-com next to it. And, and we saw that in 2017 with the um, initial coin offerings. Um, Ethereum went public that that year. They issued their token and there was a huge run-up. And so everybody was looking for the next Ethereum. And and so companies were just teams, um, existent or or not, were putting up websites and collecting money uh, from from, uh, investors that were hoping to get get into the the next Ethereum or or Bitcoin. And, And so... Um, that was very similar to you know companies just adding .com. There were a number of companies that just added blockchain <laughs> to their their name and and they had the same experience. Um, so uh, you know history does does rhyme, and, and we saw that in 2017. Um, and, and then there was the inevitable crash because most of these companies really had no fair there. There wasn't really anything behind what they we were doing and any company like ethereum um, uh, uh, you know it takes time to build technology that's going to scale uh, that's that's going to be adopted and and so um, it, with Bitcoin we we've seen uh, increasing scalability number of transactions um, the you know as more people uh, come onto the network it becomes more stable more decentralized and And so we've seen that progression, but there were still a lot of questions back then on on, um, not only the underlying technology, but then all this confusion around these kind of new companies that didn't really have any technology. Um, So then the inevitable uh, crash happened. Some speculators made a lot of money and they disappeared. And then the real builders stayed. What I've seen as an early stage investor, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs that I invested in 10, 20 years ago, started becoming really fascinated by the concept of decentralization and and what it could mean. And and they started getting into this space. And and to me, that is the biggest leading indicator of of whether um, any new technology has staying power. It's who can that technology attract beyond just the early adopters? And, and so we, we've seen that happen in a big way over the last three years. And then what's happened um, on a macro level, right? We, we've seen all the stimulus uh, uh, in, in the era of COVID, um, uh, inflation uh, concerns about future inflation, um, uh, government policies, um, kind of all the reasons that, that Bitcoin appealed to so many Um, You know, in those emerging markets, uh, we've now seen um, a lot of hedge fund managers, corporations, um, you know, really looking for a hedge uh, against inflation, as well as a search for yield. Um, And and so we're going to continue to see that because I don't see that macro environment really changing.
0: How much of your bull case right now for Bitcoin is just that the technology is so compelling that its rise was inevitable? And how much of it is based on that macro backdrop that you talked about? Is the macro backdrop with all the money printing and the growth of the money supply just accelerating what was an inevitable uh, rise of decentralized technology and blockchains? Or how do you look at that puzzle?
1: Yeah, I I feel like a lot has been turbocharged as far as looking at technology um, and and our thesis. Um, And it's, uh, if you look at bitcoin um, from a, from a store of value as an investable asset that narrative ha- has certainly been given a boost by what we've seen on the macro environment I and mean, bitcoin was really created as an exchange of value or to be an exchange of value and right. and and so that has morphed into more of a store of value now it, that doesn't mean that it can't eventually be used as an exchange um, of value or that um, there's certain regions in the world or certain populations around the world that won't use it that way Uh, and we're certainly investing in solutions that that can enable that Um, but i i think uh, if you just look at it um, as as it's come into its own as as this the store of value this year um, now I was holding it well before <laughs> this happened, because I believe that it was going to have value in, in, in some form or another. And, and you know, the problem with a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes is they have a vision of the world. And, and I mean, that's not necessarily a problem. That's what helps them create the technology. But then they become these maximalists who believe that is the only way that technology can be used. Um, and my belief as an investor is that you have to put the technology out there and then you have to take feedback and, um, and, and see how people use it. I, I, I first encountered that when, when I spent time in, in Africa amongst uh, women. I, I spent a summer um, uh, before I joined Intel after business school training women entrepreneurs in rural areas all over Tanzania, I lived in Dar es Salaam. And um, these women, um, and this is pre-internet, um, they had mobile phones, but they didn't have internet connectivity right. through their mobile phones. Um, and, and it was fascinating what they would use those phones for. And I can guarantee no one in the U.S. was was thinking of, of the usage the, the same way. And, and we've seen that with WhatsApp and a number of other applications that took hold in some of these markets. So yeah. I, I just believe that yeah. you know you can't you cannot um, uh, kind of dictate you can't create a technology and then dictate how people use it and, and so this year it's been fascinating to see what Bitcoin has become to most of the world and and so um, but I, I believe that a technology was so strong and the whole idea of crypto economics, which is to me, you know, just part of the genius behind the Bitcoin blockchain or blockchain technology and crypto assets in general. Um, and, and that's what really allows um, uh, verification of transactions without intermediaries is the fact that uh, the, the system is incentivized to stay honest and, and to keep creating value. And, and it's, it's in some ways so simple, but it's uh, technically very complex, but I, I felt like this was going to be used in some form or another. Um, and, and, and so I, I've been a holder, you know, since 20, 2013 and, and believe it's going a to be hodler, hodler. Yes. Yeah, so I, I didn't want to go to get into the that. jargon,
0: <laughs> but you talked about how the genie is sort of out of the bottle you still see some countries make noise about potentially banning Bitcoin. You know, like you mentioned, people that grew up in countries that had hyperinflation, whether it be Argentina uh, or, or countries in Africa that experienced these bouts of hyperinflation, the story resonates with them in a very real way. But how likely do you think it is that someone like India, who is talking about it now, the potential for banning Bitcoin, how likely do you think it is that they do ban Bitcoin is Bitcoin bannable? So let's say the United States and India and China and Germany decide that, you know what, you know, we're printing all this money. We're creating this hyperinflationary environment. We can't allow something like Bitcoin to be out there. We're going to ban uh, Bitcoin from existing. We're going to prevent at least people in our country from owning Bitcoin, make it illegal. Is Bitcoin bannable? What would that look like uh, if countries went out there and tried to ban it? Or is it past the point of no return now where it's going to find a place to live?
1: Well, we've seen this happen over the years. China did this uh, in in 2017, I believe, I don't remember the exact year. Uh, People continued to access these networks through VPNs. Um, If you actually were in China, you realized that there was a lot of mining happening. Um, And and so the reality on the ground was very different um, uh, than, than the narrative. India effectively did that. So we were, uh, we are an investor in a company called Unicoin, which was the first uh, uh, crypto exchange in in India. We invested in the company in early 2017. And later that year, India basically banged any any, um, banks from Um, uh, banking crypto uh, related companies people became really concerned uh, the average population the retail investors uh, and and effectively almost shut down the crypto um, uh, market in in India but what happens when that you know behind the scenes is the entrepreneurs the people who care about uh, uh, deeply about Kind of the ethos of, of uh, mon- monetary sovereignty and 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 see that happen. They continue to build. Um, Unicoin uh, led a Supreme Court challenge, which um, overturned that ban. And in, in last, uh, or it was actually earlier. Um, Is it early 2020? I've lost track of time. Yeah,
0: time is like a flat circle at this point. And
1: and the market's grown significantly since then. Now India is once again saying that they're going to, or threatening to ban. Now, my theory on all of this is um, a lot of these uh, countries want to figure out what their central bank digital currencies are going to look like, uh, because they are threatened by an alternative to their central bank Currency, and they want to figure out a system where they, they can offer digital versions of their currency and then figure out how something like Bitcoin or independent uh, cryptos would, would fit into that system. How uh, would
0: they fit into that system? You know, we, we, huh. we ask that frequently on these talks about in a world where the, there's a U.S. dollar built on the blockchain, there's a yuan, there's, a, you know, currencies around the world have their own central bank digital currencies. How does Bitcoin fit into that? Is it a threat? Is it uh, accretive to Bitcoin? How does it live in that world?
1: Well I, I personally believe it's accretive to, to Bitcoin. I, you know, I, I have this this uh, investment thesis that I've always had is that you know no incumbent is safe but you look at Blockbuster back in the day who you know said that no one was going to actually watch you know movies uh, through the internet. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, either from a technical or a kind of user perspective they would they wouldn't do that so um, central banks uh, I, I believe haven't thought that there was any threat to their power and and uh, Bitcoin and then uh, co- companies like Facebook saying that they're going to issue their own uh, digital currency and kind it of changed the central bank uh, perspective on that and 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 so Again, going back to you know, once people feel like they've had exposure to something and it's taken away from them, they are hyper aware of that. If they never had exposure, then they don't know what they're missing. Right. But we've now gone to the point where most populations around the world have had some some exposure, have heard about this, and and have also seen their own governments how they're acting versus other government. We've seen it here in the U.S. This you know in the last few months and. And, and so, um, I believe that central banks are, are going to have to have policies that uh, that take into account that there are competitors to their fiat currencies and and offer value back. Now, there's always a threat that they can try to shut off uh, access. They, I think, one of the biggest threats is taxation and how they tax cryptos. Um, and and so, those those are very real threats. But I, I think. We also, and governments, need to also be aware that um, people have power. And, and, the, and, and we look at GameStop and what just happened, you know, and, and it may all seem unrelated, but I, I think that's, that shows that the grassroots movement, retail investors, people on the ground that now have access to more information than ever um, will, will rise up if, if, uh, if they feel threatened. And especially if they feel that Um, uh, their hard-earned money uh, and and livelihood is is at stake.
0: All right, so I want you to pretend like you're the PR representative for Satoshi Nakamoto, and you're going to talk to the Indian government. Uh, You live in Miami. You actually have Valley uh, investors and entrepreneurs that have moved to Miami. Uh, But the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, has been very proactive in pulling people uh, from Silicon Valley by being very pro-business, pro-tech and most recently pro-Bitcoin and trying to create a regulatory framework and an environment that's conducive to iterating, you know, in in terms of blockchain and Bitcoin. So if you were to talk to the government of India and you said, you know what, rather than banning Bitcoin, how about you embrace Bitcoin and you create, you know, an ecosystem that's conducive to innovation within the blockchain space? Why would that be such a powerful thing for a country to go all in? on Bitcoin, there's been some prominent voices in the VC community who have written about this, but I think it's an interesting topic and would love your perspective on it.
1: Well, I think it's a proxy for innovation in general. And if you look at countries like India, um, Kenya, and and I'll, I'll Let me just tell a little story about about Kenya and my interaction with the central bank governor of of Kenya. Um, I'm an investor in a company called Bitpesa. I was one of their founding investors in 2014. They're now called Aza. They're the first uh, company to look at using the Bitcoin blockchain as as a back end for financial transactions, uh, both at the institutional and retail level. both within the continent of Africa and and then a, a, across across continents, um, and um, and the idea there was right now that the banking system, uh, the correspondent banking system, requires many many different banks to get involved, which add fees and layers of fees where. Uh, a transaction from Kenya to uh, the Ivory Coast can cost up to 20% of the transaction, uh, which even for institutions is is something that they they don't want to do. And and so being able to just reduce that to one transaction in and out of uh, a Bitcoin or any other crypto um, and and provide that liquidity uh, and, and do it in an instantaneous way with lower fees um, they've seen tremendous growth over, over, especially the last year. Um, so, if if you take, so I once asked the central bank governor up there, you know, why are you so threatened by by uh, Bitpesa? Because they they were, they tried to shut it down initially. Now they're working with the company, uh, as are many other countries uh, uh, within Africa. Um, but they. He had a point where you know, he said, we're just being accepted into the global monetary system and we can't afford any missteps. We're being watched by everybody. And, and it provided perspective for you know, all of these emerging markets. Um, they, um, uh, they, they need to make sure that uh, their, their uh, monetary policy is sound. And uh, But I think this is an opportunity for especially India to take the lead. Um, and, and also, uh, along those lines, uh, not only take a leap, but leapfrog. Um, and and I, I've been, you know, I- have been banging I, I, that I just, drum? I'm sorry?
0: You've been banging that drum?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. So I, I've been a big India bull for, uh, I mean, I started investing in, in India in 1999 was when I was at Intel, one of my companies there IPO'd. Um, you know, I, I, India has certainly been through uh, many challenges. Uh, it can be very bureaucratic, some of the policies just don't make sense. And and um, but I, I think you know, given what we're seeing right now with uh, with China and COVID and some of the supply chain disruptions we saw uh, by reliance on on just one country and one region, India's really had an opportunity and, and stepped up to that opportunity. On the supply chain side, and and you know a lot more businesses, including like Apple, is now doing more manufacturing there. And I think we can move that to then looking at at money and and then looking at fintech and and taking a leadership role. If India has an opportunity to do that, now that doesn't mean they don't issue their their digital rupee, um, but they could be a model of how how um, the the rupee can interact with. Um, a, a, a currency that is kind of independent of, of any other controls or reliance on the dollar. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. I'm a big fan of the U.S. It's, it's been great to me. But I also think that dependence on any one country Um, and we've seen this is is not a good thing. And and that's why we're investing in decentralization. The whole concept of Bitcoin and blockchain tech is no single point of failure. And and so India has an opportunity to not only further their own goals of of being a a major player and I believe they already are, but but maybe the foremost player on the world stage by, by really looking at the intersection of of a digital currency as well as decentralized currency. And there's an incredible amount of talent there. It's a very entrepreneurial country. um, And and so I think it has all the the makings, uh, you know, uh, and ability to do this. Um, Another point is that they were the first country to have a... um, a digital identity system. Uh, When I was at Omidyar, I I worked on this project uh, with um, the Indian government. And um, a lot of people thought there's no way that you're going to be able to get people in rural areas, farmers, people who weren't literate to actually, you know, buy into this system of of this digital identity. Um, But once the government, or once these people saw that they were uh, able to get their government, um, you know, subsidies payments um, through this digital system, they they all signed up, and it, it it actually ended up being very efficient. Almost the whole country is now on this uh, digital identity system, and so that's another infrastructure layer that uh, can underpin um you know uh, yeah. a, a blended monetary system
0: let's talk more about that it was actually my next question because i think it's a fascinating topic especially in the midst of a global pandemic especially in the midst of a vaccine rollout where mm-hmm. we're trying to track who's vaccinated who's not vaccinated uh you know who is at risk who's eligible for the vaccine and a digital identity network would obviously solve a lot of those issues and make it much more organized Where are we in the United States around that idea of digital identity? We had uh, an Israeli entrepreneur and doctor on Salt Talks recently talking about how they have a digital identity system in Israel, and it's been very helpful for vaccine rollout, and they've rolled out the vaccine very effectively. But let's say, you know, let's think very futuristically here. If the United States did roll out a digital identity system, every child that's born gets cataloged in this system you know, they're tracking different elements of your life, your finances. What could the world look like if we had a truly robust digital identity system?
1: I, I think there's tremendous potential, obviously, if, if that were to happen. The challenge is the privacy implications around that. And the United States is, is uh, uh, you know, a place where y- you can't kind of track people the same way you can in a place like Singapore or right. Israel. <laughs> um, if you look at COVID response, um, you know Taiwan, and you know if you basically, you know, your your phone could be tracked, and and if um, you didn't answer your phone or if they thought you were you left your home, you would have the police come to your place. And and so I think there, you know, certainly privacy implications around identity systems, um, and in some ways that's. You know, we're we're beyond that point, but in, in in other ways, if if people if you start pushing it too much, right? people, are
0: yeah. P- people think they're not being tracked in the United right. States uh, when they probably are, and they just don't realize it yet. But, but they, they are.
1: But it, it, I mean, it, they are. But but they aren't in the same overt way. Otherwise, you know, our response and, and COVID would have been very very different. Now, wh- where I think blockchain technology and technology in general is is really could play a role here is is concept of things like homomorphic encryption of zero knowledge proofs and, and to kind of put it in layman's terms, these are technologies that allow you to create identifiers um, without revealing the underlying information. So right, it's encrypted you know, in some way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, um, and, and we, we're investors in a number of early stage companies working on these technologies. And, and that's where you know, you can still preserve some of the privacy, or you can decide you want to give up some of that privacy, maybe in return for certain services. Um, right. That if you know, I was able to get the vaccine sooner, I may be willing to do you know, uh, get give up um, my my date of birth and my address, um, which otherwise you know I, I wouldn't have to give up. So, so I think there are ways, um, uh, and and I've been really fascinated by this topic of of, uh, of data and data availability. and and data privacy, and and the technology is is now allowing for more granularity here in in how we divide up data. Um, There's been no pressure for companies like Google and Facebook to, to adopt any of these, but we are now seeing a big pushback. Um, uh, around the business models, around data collection, and and so, um, one of the reasons I got really interested in, in decentralization was this this whole idea of you know I could I could actually own my data, hold it in a wallet, and then permission it out whichever way I want to. And, and it's not that different say than, than Bitcoin where you know yeah. I, I hold a private key to my Bitcoin, I can release it uh, uh, when it gets matched with a public key. And you can do that. You can look at a Bitcoin as just any piece of data and you can do it with your healthcare data. You can do it with your credentialing. Um, and, and, and so, it's kind of mind-blowing all the business models that can emerge from this underlying technology. And I think identity is, is, is a big piece of it. Um, and, um, and you know, the challenge is when you start to cross borders, there are different policies around data. And how how do you reconcile that? And I do believe technology will allow us to do that um, uh, soon.
0: Yeah, you know, in some ways, you could view the aggregation of data as being sort of big brother, but in a lot of ways, it empowers the individual to own their own data. So, you know, Facebook or Google, their product is built on top of our data. You know, the, the market cap of those companies is based on the fact that our data is extremely valuable. So why should we not be empowered to decide how that data is used and be able to monetize it? Uh, it's a fascinating topic. And maybe the company you're invested in, I, I have a friend who started a similar company. I don't know if it's the same one or not. and We can sync up offline about that. But I want to talk about non-fungible tokens for a second. So my brother is a big sports card collector, which has been good for him because we're in the middle of a boom in terms of the prices of sports cards and trading cards and other uh, scarce assets. Uh, but non-fungible tokens, one application for them has been NBA top shots, for example. So basically you can collect digital highlights from NBA games. Could you talk about for people who are less familiar with what's happening in the space what they are and why they're interesting, uh, from a, you know, blockchain decentralization perspective.
1: Yeah. And, and this is, um, one of the areas we've, we've been most interested in also. Um, I, I'm very into art. Um, I actually did collect baseball cards, believe it or not, when there I you was go. younger, I was a big baseball fan. Um, uh, uh, but it seems like basketball is, is really where a lot of the value creation has been. Um, so, this, this concept of, of uh, assigning uh, value uh, to an asset that then, you know, it could be a physical asset or it could be a digital asset, but then could be tracked and the provenance of, of that particular asset can be tracked. Um, and, and so you can start... Looking at uh, say you take a say you take a baseball card and um, and it's verified that that I own this baseball card um, and the the um, how many editions of it are out there are part of the data set uh, what condition it is in how many times it's changed hands all of that is part of the data set and then that can be valued um, uh, in a marketplace a, a digital marketplace and traded now the whole thing can be traded or we can just trade an interest in in that particular asset and and so i could say i want to sell off um 10 of it and then uh people who are interested in and in, or if they think it's going to appreciate just like anything they would invest um uh, uh you know their, their capital in it or another uh, crypto in it and and then it could uh, if I decide to sell the entire amount uh, or, or the entire asset, it, it, um, it gets distributed accordingly. So enables a lot of um, micro marketplaces to, uh, to take hold. Um, also, an investor in a company called Everledger, they put diamond provenance information on the blockchain starting in 2015. They've started working... With uh, brands and retailers uh, who want to issue digital versions of clothes uh, that people then can collect, they can potentially use it on on gaming sites or they can just collect it thinking, you know with the idea that it's going to be worth something down the road there also may be a physical asset that is linked to that digital asset. So there are so many potential opportunities around these these digitized tokens that can be tied to, you know, real world physical assets, or if they can just reside in in the digital world. Um, And and any creator uh, who thinks that their work is worth something. So digital art, if if uh, they can create ten versions of an art piece, issue it, and 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 right now any artist has to go through galleries. They, there's a huge kind of. Uh, supply chain, value chain that exists in in the art world. This can go kind of directly. And and this is, again, very similar to Bitcoin. It's a currency that can exchange hands directly uh, between people without banks. And and this is the idea around any kind of, any assets. um, uh, and, And it's happening a lot around, you know, sports memorabilia, it, it, um, whether it's physical or or purely digital, it's uh, happening a lot around the art world, um, and and so it, it's kind of wide open. We're in very very early days, um, and but but I do think the sports world has has kind of um, been leaders um, in in, in kind of taking advantage of of or thinking about the opportunity. Um, you can also potentially you know tie. Uh, an experience to a token. So, if um, you know a, a sports athlete wants to issue a card of himself, he can also say, "Well, the first ten people um, who purchase this, or if you purchase it above a certain price, you you get access to an experience." Um, that experience could then become tradable so again like this idea of granularity around assets and programming assets and and then uh price discovery and value discovery um i i don't think we're we've seen the beginnings of
0: of right you just you just came up with a great idea for the next iteration of cameo i don't know if you're familiar with that platform but you know you could create scarcity for uh you know the ability to to get a unique experience or unique message from from a celebrity it's a fascinating concept and just intellectually you know some people say well digital art that doesn't make any sense to me you know it, it lives on the internet it's not like a painting you can hang on your wall and i just i just say you know somebody could forge a painting a physical painting the same way that they, they could be you know a legal uh, replication of digital art or you know digital trading cards or whatever it may be and money is the same thing money is only as valuable as as a society and as a globe that we decided is. And so I don't see any reason why digital art, digital money or digital collectibles is really any different in a digital native world than physical items. And and you could, you could argue as well that it's uh, significantly more valuable. You know, some people say gold and Bitcoin are going to reach parity in terms of being a store of value, but then other people say, well, why stop there? Uh, You know, there's, there's no reason why Bitcoin can't dramatically exceed Um, gold's market cap. So Jalak, it's been fascinating talking to you. Uh, Hopefully we can have another appearance from you at one of our salt conferences in the future in person uh, once that becomes safe again. But uh, I'm jealous of you being down in Miami. As I mentioned before we started, I was down uh, in South Florida for a good part of the beginning of this year. But as I look outside uh, my window at snow, I'm jealous. But uh, congratulations on all your success and being so early to the space.
1: Thanks for having me. And uh, it's, it's exciting times in Miami, too, with what the mayor is doing and, and a lot of crypto folks and, and tech folks down here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely be down uh, before long to, to soak up some of that sunshine. But And thank you everybody for tuning into today's uh, salt talk as well to learn more about this digital asset space. We think that's very important that you you have an open mind about what's happening in the world or else you're going to get uh, left behind. You still see derision from some of the old guard around what's happening with Bitcoin and decentralization. And so it's good to to open your mind and learn about these topics. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, including episodes with a variety of thought leaders in the blockchain uh, crypto universe, You can access them all on our website at salt.org backslash talks. Um, Also, we're on social media. Please follow us on Twitter at Salt Conference. You can follow Jalak uh, on Twitter as well, where she's a fantastic follow. Uh, But we're also active on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word. We love uh, spreading the message, you know, these educational segments that we do on Salt Talks. We love uh, broadening our community and broadening their message. Uh, But on behalf of the entire Salt team, Uh, This is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here soon.